Is it actually 5784? Did I make that up? What Jewish year is it? This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. It's 2024, and I'm still Stephanie Butnick, and I'm still joined by my two co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large Leah Leibovitz. Hello to you and a Freilicha 2024. And Joshua Molina, who I looked for on screen last night at the Golden Globes, did not see him. He was busy home preparing for this podcast. In my defense, the only reason I wasn't there is that I was neither nominated nor invited to attend. <laughs> We will change all that in the year to come, Josh and Melina. Yes. Oh, yes. here, here. We are starting a new year, hopefully a better year than this past year, at least that last leg. We are here with beginning of January energy, the like no drinking, healthy New Year. Wait, Year's. I didn't agree to no drinking. <laughs> Hang on. I'm, I'm, I'm not having a, a dry Tevet. That's just not going to happen. Sober doesn't rhyme with January. <laughs> I will say, though, I much prefer the Jewish New Year. The Gentilic New Year, like it's a little bit anticlimactic. I don't feel that happy, like, fall feeling of, like, moving towards something. I feel like that cold January slog into, like, the next leg of winter. Also, again, how do they even know? It's like, it's just at a random date in the middle of Tibet. Like, how do they even know when it falls? <laughs> Very confusing. Today on the show, we have an interview with the wonderful comedian Moshe Kasher. He joins us to discuss his new memoir, Subculture Vulture. We're also sharing another story from our Israel trip last month, this one about Blendar, a nonprofit Arabic and Hebrew language exchange program that connects Jewish and Arab Israelis. But before we get to all that, what's going on with you guys? How are you? It's been a while since I've seen your little Zoom faces. Look, guys, 2023 ended uh, in just about the most horrific manner possible, and uh, we hear had the privilege of being witness to it with our Israel trip. And when we came back, I really felt like I needed a radical change of scenery. I needed to go from from the heart of war to the only place that could revive my spirits. And so we spent the break, or as they call it, Goyish Cholamoid, that wonderful <laughs> week between <laughs> Christmas and New Year's, in the happiest place on earth. We were Disney bound. And, you know, I know, not the, not the most popular opinion, uh, considering... No, I love it. No, I mean, Walt Disney's attitude towards our people. But there's something about Disney World that gives me, like, really strong Zionist vibes. Because if you think about the thing, like, here's this, like, barren, swampy wasteland. And this visionary is like, you know, one day it too will bloom. One day I look here, I see the Thunder Mountain, the Pirates of... I don't know why I'm giving, you know, Walt Disney an Israeli accent here. <laughs> he wishes. He wishes he was that kind of Imagineer. He's been cryogenically frozen, his head, so that they can add an Israeli accent when they have that technology. <laughs> I love, love, love Disney World. And we had an amazing time. Does it bother you that the Star Wars rides, which take place in the galaxy far, far away, a long, long time ago, are nonetheless in Tomorrowland? Is that not? <laughs> They're only in Tomorrowland for you, Californian heathens. Oh, in okay, Florida, right. the proper way to do it is that they have their own kind of standalone universe in the Disney Hollywood Studios. Not only that, the thing that is so freakishly impressive about this, you buy a Diet Coke in that place. The Diet Coke comes in like a Star Wars shaped bottle with Star Wars font on it. It looks like if you bought a Diet Coke on Tatooine, like every single freaking thing in there, like every commercial opportunity, of which there are quite quite a few, slash nothing but, is 100% in character. Like nothing ever breaks character. So I know there are Disney obsessives. Are there Jewish Disney obsessives? Like, is there a subculture that we're about to tap into of people who are like, I know all the Jewish characters in all the movies. Like, give me the whole, give me the Jewish lay of the land. First of all, of course they are. Second of all, you could call a number and get glad kosher meals delivered to you at a time and place of your choosing in any Disney park, which like is- Like through Disney, official Disney. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. O official, wow. official. I wish they too were kind of like in character, like the Star Wars treats. I wish it's like, you know, Yoda's Parv yogurt and, <laughs> and, and stuff like that. Like if the shrink wrap was branded or <laughs> that says no one has touched this. <laughs> Touch this, no one has. <laughs> Under the supervision of the board of directors of Rabbis of Florida, this is. <laughs> um, but the greatest thing is that if you're looking for places to pray, I think I might have shared this on our last family vacation. There are about a hundred 
Muslim Disney fanatic groups and and sites that show you like the exact places in each one of the Disney parks that you could go to for your daily prayer needs. Personally, there is absolutely nothing like Mincha in Cinderella's castle. Just saying. (laughs) That is a magic moment. I love this. This could be like a new interfaith trip where Jews and Muslims go together to Disney and we experience our shared humanity over halal and kosher meals and needing to pray at strange times during the day. And like, how about we both we both <laughs> give up Israel and all basically go to Florida together? The other promised land. Right. <laughs> Stephanie Bunting, though, what did, what did you do as I was standing in line to ride Star Tours for the seventh time? As I've shared before, I grew up in the shuttle of Long Island, didn't really see much Christmas. Like, honestly, like, well, very removed from Christmas. Got to college, was like, oh, my God, this this thing is great. This is a great holiday. It's real. Super fun. Yeah, like, they like great it. music, great tunes, all that stuff. Uh, you're welcome. But, you know, I sort of have a love of Christmas. It's really fun to be in New York for Christmas. Like, I love the lights. I know a lot of Jews feel, like, threatened or othered by Christmas. I, I don't have that. I didn't experience that ever growing up. And what I thought was great was I'm raising my child in New York City. I can show her, oh, the lights and the carols. And a friend and I took our daughters to dinner together for like a little girl's night. And on the way over, we passed these carolers. And my friend isn't Jewish. Her husband is Jewish. They're raising her with a little mix of both. And we stopped by the carolers and her daughter got so excited. And Edith was just like, what is this? This is great. This is on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. We saw two groups of carolers. I was like, are these all the Gentiles on the Upper West Side? They're all, they've all come Uh, together. uh, There's two groups of them. It was crazy. You looked at me like, Rabbi? (laughs) Is, is that you? And the funniest thing was, so the carolers see these two little girls, like listening to them, and they say, oh, do you have a request? And Edith, who is in a very, very, very uh, Pixar Cars moment right now, she's obsessed with the movie Cars, she goes, life is a highway, <laughs> which is, of course, <laughs> one of the big songs from that from that movie. It plays nonstop in my head, in my home, my car, everywhere. And the carolers were like, oh, so sorry, like, we don't have that in this book. Her friend, of course, requests Frosty the Snowman, proceeds to get out of her stroller and join the carolers, gets sits on the front row, gets a Santa hat. And now anytime Christmas comes up, Edith says, Amelia loves Christmas. Amelia loves Christmas. <laughs> and so now she's decided, like, so Amelia celebrates Christmas and Edith celebrates Hanukkah. And so it's like, it's, it's very funny. Like, Christmas will come up to be like, no Christmas, Hanukkah. And I was like, how did you learn this? Because I'm not here teaching you like, I want to teach you, you know, the the multi-denominational consumerism of, of American holidays broadly. Like, I want you to I want you to love it all. But she somehow <laughs> has it in her head. She, like, she knows she does not celebrate Christmas. And she's, like, really in on Hanukkah. And I don't know how this happens. Like, I don't think she's being indoctrinated anywhere with anything. But somehow that detail has seeped into her brain. It seeps in. She's like, Edith celebrates Hanukkah, holiday of zealots. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, my tiny toddler zealot. Next year we have Chrismica proper because I think the first night of Hanukkah is on the evening of Christmas Day itself. It's amazing. Chrismica, a day for Seth Cohen, for all the Cohens really, but particularly Seth and Sandy Cohen of the OC. That'll be a big moment for all of us. All right. You have some darkness, Joshua Molina, you'd like to bring to the floor. I was just going to say, as much as I embrace the new year, even the Goetia New Year, and hope that it brings good things, it's getting hard every day waking up and reading about the situation in Gaza. And I want to make sure we bear witness to that as well. Molina, why are you going to bring us down? I'm talking carolers. I know. Well, maybe that's, I feel like perhaps that's my, maybe that is my role that I'm really finally settling into. I thought that was Liel's job. Liel's bringing us Disney magic. (laughs) Yeah, you know, you know, it's going to be a heck of a year that I am the the rosy, happy, (laughs) chatty one. Oh yeah, that's right. It's pretty terrible. And I have great concern while I have, and we have as a podcast always supported Israel's right and responsibility to have a military response to the atrocities of October 7th. It is getting hard to wake up and read that 70% of Gazans are facing food insecurity, which is, I guess, a pretty way of saying possible starvation. 70% of homes are destroyed. You've got Smotrich and Ben Gvir talking about resettling Palestinians or Gazans to other places. I just want to make sure we don't blithely put out another episode without... I see your darkness, and I and I raise you more darkness. As, as As the Rebel Leonard Cohen said, you want it darker? Yeah, oh, I love that song. Okay, we turn off the light. I share some of your concerns, but not probably for quite the same reasons. I have been struggling, to be honest, over the last few weeks with a growing number of reports, some of which were easy to sort of push aside. Those were the reports that came from the uh, Palestinian, basically the Palestinian Pew survey that showed, even taken in November, I believe, 
overwhelming support for these atrocities. You know, that's always easy to kind of brush aside. But then when you start seeing the reports that come from eyewitnesses from Gaza and that come from hostages, Israeli hostages who'd return, that inform you of the wide-scale participation. I mean, we now think that more than half the people who came that day to Israel were actually not Hamas at all. And what number would that be relative to the two million inhabitants of Gaza? That's a good question. That is a I think it is question. a very good question because, right. I mean, so I don't my, want... Right, but my question, but, but that, this is why I say I want it darker because now the question is, okay, now what? The, the perennial disturbing issue of what do you do the day after? There is no Palestinian leadership in the offing, uh, much as I regret to say there's no Israeli leadership in the offing I would like to give the country to after this is done. There's no Palestinian leadership I'd like to give that country to while it's done. Uh, this is a true, you know, we need a freaking miracle type situation. Thankfully, Hashem, in, in this particular corner of the world, has a way of delivering just that. Uh, so I'm, I'm voting Hashem in 2024. Yeah, my concern is that Israel's endgame maybe is as viable as hoping that Hashem will take care of things and tidy up in Gaza once it's been utterly destroyed and most of the population has been been displaced. And, uh, I, you know, there's there's a response, much as the, Israel has a responsibility for a military response to October 7th, I think Israel has some responsibility in how they conducted and having some sort of endgame. Uh, you know, and again, we can talk about these disturbing polls that show that 70% of Gazans support Hamas, but when 50% of Gazans are under 14, the numbers start to take a, a, a different image, I think, at least in my mind. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm frankly much more troubled by the fact that right now, looking at Israel's war strategy, I, I actually don't actually don't see a, a point to much of it. I don't know what it is that they're hoping to achieve militarily. I, I don't think that necessarily they know. I see a war cabinet that is engaged in unending internal disputes, most of which seem to be focused almost exclusively around the fact of who will get the credit and the blame in the committee of inquiry. It is looking pretty grim. And by the way, it's been almost 100 days since October 7th. There are still hostages held by Hamas. I was, I was walking still with a friend. more than 100 hostages. I was walking with a friend and I said, you know, what's going to happen to the hostages? And she says, wait, they haven't all been freed? And I was like, no, like, I think you see the way people move on and move past and the trends of the news. I mean, I think the hostages have become almost like a footnote in this larger story, even though this is what caused all of this. And I think that you see, you know, people whose relatives are captured and you don't even know what that outcome is going to be. And I just think that it's it's so heartbreaking on so many levels. I don't think we even know the current status, who's alive and who isn't. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. even even that like uh... we, we don't we don't again, we don't know who's holding uh, many of these people because. Hamas and Islamic Jihad are holding some, but some of them, as we now know for a fact, are just held by people. True. Horrible. Okay, have I brought us down enough for us to move blithely on to the next section of the show? No, I think we now need some Holocaust-related and maybe a school shooting, a synagogue shooting in News of the Jews. Do we have something like that in the offing? That would help transitionally. <laughs> Sadly, we do. Yeah. Now, your punishment for taking us <laughs> there is that you have to read the first news story about teen accused of planning mass shooting. Yeah, News of the Jews. News of the Jews, oh yeah, N-O-T-J, News of the Jews. Well, apparently a 13-year-old boy was arrested and accused of planning a mass shooting, this one at an Ohio synagogue. And as a result, he's going to have to write a book report. <laughs> I mean, I'm no judge, but that feels about right. You have to write a book report on a Swiss diplomat who saved thousands of Jewish people during World War II. So rules a family court judge. Oy vey. I do like this because I think the prospect of any type of work, of homework, will dissuade stupid teens from doing stupid shit forever. Right. Right. More so than capital punishment, say. Yes, exactly. It's like you might have to read a book. Book report. If you, in fact, do this. But yeah, this is... I do feel like it's important to find the humor in these stories. I also want to be like a 13-year-old boy who was arrested and accused of planning a mass shooting at an Ohio synagogue. Like That is an insane sentence that's just like in the news. I don't know how much longer we'll be able to keep joking about this stuff. Uh, well, at least it didn't do anything radical like take away his TikTok. 
because, you know, we still do have a system of justice in this country. Uh, yeah, this is super, super depressing. We do have some lighter news to bring you this week. It's the latest in the the drafts, the Jewish drafts. We gain someone to the tribe and we're actually losing someone from the tribe. It's a zero sum game this week. But but I, th- I think we came out well on top. The first one was that everyone seemed to realize last week that Alanis Morissette is Jewish. She was on that that genealogy show, Finding Your Roots. And she basically says, yeah, that she found out she was Jewish in her 20s. We, of course, found out last week. So we're still all processing that news. It was kept a secret from her for most of her life. So her mother was born in Hungary to two Holocaust survivors. And that information was kept secret, I think, from Alanis. I don't know who else, but came out, you know, when she became an adult. And now now we all know it. That's seven more Grammys to add to our tally. That's how I look at it. I mean, her mother's last name was Feuerstein, and Morissette is a is a practicing Buddhist. Like, really, you didn't you didn't figure out you were Jewish? You, you ought to know. <laughs> <laughs> nice. In her defense, her mother was Georgia Mary Ann Feuerstein, which is a mixed message. By the time you get to Feuerstein, you're just like, what in the wasp is this? But yeah, so I'm I'm super excited about this. Now, who did we who did we trade for the great Alanis Morissette? I just going to read this from the Times of Israel. Jewish-born actor Shia LaBeouf converts to Catholicism in tens to become deacon. We wish you well, Shia. We hope... Godspeed on your journey. What do you say to someone in this in this thing? As, uh, as we say in Latin, gay <laughs> <laughs> Don't let the synagogue have, door hit you. Uh, exactly. Right. Have fun. May you find may you find God. You know, my favorite genre of Jewish journalism is like, this person is Jewish, therefore this thing they said is relevant. Um, so this article, <laughs> of course, is like all my favorite things. I'm going to read you one paragraph from it. LaBeouf, who was born to a Jewish mother and a Christian father, had a bar mitzvah at age 13, but was also baptized. He began the process of conversion after starring as one of Italy's best-known and most revered saints in the 2022 film Padre Pio. So he's officially Catholic. He got confirmed on New Year's Eve, on Gentile New Year's Eve, not our New Year's Eve, at a mass presided over by Capuchin Franciscan Friars. Did I say that correctly? I believe you did. And here's another, since this is a week of revelations... I'm completely obsessed with Padre Pio. Really? And in fact, I have a calendar of his lying somewhere around. Uh, my oh, desk. not the movie, the man himself. The man himself. The movie did not do him justice, which may or may not have to do with the thespian abilities that of Shia LaBeouf. Joshua Molina is Padre Pio. Now that is Come the on. Padre Pio that, that we <laughs> That's deserve. more interesting casting. As Abba Pio. <laughs> so yeah, mazel tov to you, Shia LaBeouf. As always, write in. Tell us who you want to, I guess, convert in, who, who you want to trade for, and who you're willing to trade away in the Great Jewish Draft of 2024, 5784. Numbers line up. It is beautiful. Unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We can make this a thing. We can get a bracket going. excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Our Jewish guest this week is Moshe Kasher. He's a Jewish comedian and the co-host of the podcast Endless Honeymoon. He joins us to discuss his new memoir, Subculture Vulture, which chronicles the many worlds he's been a part of, from comedy to AA, the deaf community, rave culture, Hasidic Judaism, and Burning Man. Josh and I talked to him about all of this, but especially the Jewish stuff. Moshe Kasher, 
Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. I really like that you gave us a reading assignment before we interviewed you. You're like, read chapter five, the big Jewy chapter. Well, I feel <laughs> like my book has a great advantage for podcasters because depending on who they are, they only have to read one chapter. They don't have to slog through the entire book. It's not a slog. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's not a great selling point. You don't have to slog through it all. It's Jewish history. It's going to be a slog. I love that you didn't think that we would read the whole thing. Like, it's like a little insulting. No, God forbid. <laughs> I just, listen, as a Jew, I have to approach every request with a little bit of guilt. And so I want to make, <laughs> I feel guilty asking you to read everything. But yes, you only, re for this podcast, you only really had to read. I would say a chapter is the wrong word. They're like little historical novellas. How about that? They're little mini books. Explain the framing of the book, the structure, and how, how each of these moments work, both narratively in the book and then also, of course, in your life. The full subtitle of the book is uh, Subculture Vulture, a memoir in six scenes. And I wrote a book 11 years ago called Casher and the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. But that one ends when I get out of rehab for the last time when I was almost 16 years old. And over the years since I wrote that book, I have been asked a bunch of times, like, you know, what happened next? So I started thinking, what happened next? And the answer was like, a lot. Having gotten sober so young, I was 15 years old when I got sober, and I was this kid who wanted to like experience life. And I had come so close to my life literally ending when I was young that I started sort of exploring the world through these little subcultures, these little universes within themselves. And a couple of them were ones that I was born into, Judaism and Hasidic Judaism and deafness and sign language interpreting. Those are worlds that I kind of found myself in. But then my journey took me from there into AA and, and the 12 Steps and Young People's AA, the rave scene, which I was a rave promoter and a DJ and an ecstasy dealer, a sober ecstasy dealer, mind you, all through the, the early 90s. And then that took me to Burning Man. And I've been going to Burning Man since 1996. And I've been, I think the last year was my 22nd year there. And then stand-up comedy which is sort of how I make my living and how I, the reason I guess I'm able to write a memoir in the first place. So each of the segments is a comedic history of the universe that I lived in. And then it becomes a memoir about my time in those universes, basically. Do you feel you've settled into an, a final universe or are you going to keep the universe hopping? Am I in my final universe? I'm obviously getting older. And I think that's part of the reflection of this book is like, I love groups of marginalized people. I re not, marginalized is maybe the wrong word. That's true in, in the deafness and in the Judaism. But in these other subcultures, I love little societies of weirdos. That That is who attracts me, is, is people that are just a, like 1% outside of the margins of society. And that's what I found in Burning Man and in, at the rave scene and in stand-up comedy. And as you get older, I think like it's sort of natural. I have a family now and I have a kid. And a lot of this became a reflection. I thought I was writing to just championing these subcultures. But what I started to realize as I wrote the book is that a lot of it is about grieving what used to be this kind of, your life was an adventure of what you stumbled into. Like, mm -hmm. Josh, you're an actor. I imagine that you accidentally took a, I don't know, but accidentally were exposed to acting or theater or something. And then all of a sudden, you're like shunted down this path of, okay, this is my universe. This is what I'm in. It's almost like you weren't in charge. You were sort of victim to the randomness of the people that you ran into and stumbled into. Absolutely. And now, like, the internet has come and there's no more stumbling. It's like it, it arrives at your door. It arrives in your pocket more. There is no subculture. There is only monoculture. And I'm, I'm not saying the internet is bad or saying like technology is bad. I, I, it's more like the book kind of became a, a love song for these random experiences that I was thinking about my daughter. And I just hope that really what the book is about is about finding your people in the universe. And I hope that my daughter, she grows up and stops being able to breathe because oxygen has been taken out completely from our atmosphere and she has to collect her own urine for drinking water, that she <laughs> finds her people. And, and that, that, so this book was like dedicated to her, like this was my adventure through the universe and I hope you find your own universe. Mm, well said. Let's talk about the universe that concerns us directly. Uh, raves, 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 and right. no, yes, raves exactly. first. <laughs> um, Stand-up comedy. Uh, <laughs> This chapter on Judaism, Josh and I were talking about this before. Josh, what did you say it was like making you laugh? 
and cry. <laughs> I don't laugh that much when I'm with other people, but I never laugh alone. And I was I was howling. And I will say, I learned something too. I learned there's also you do a very, very good job of encapsulating the entirety of Jewish life and Jewish history in a mere 60 pages, and it's incredibly funny. Oh, thank you. It's insane. It's like you do the full Hebrew Bible, then you like get to the diaspora, then we go to the Holocaust, then we do the founding of the state of Israel, like, and then we sort of get to you, right? So like, in some way, do we need to actually kind of know the history of Judaism from day one to like understand you? I will say that I, specifically with Jewish history, at one point in my life, one iteration, and this is exactly what I was talking about with like the universe bringing itself to you and you could have gone one way, you could have gone the other. There was a moment in my life where I thought what I was going to become was a Jewish academic, what was a Jewish history professor. That was sort of my, my the path mm. that I was on. And I almost literally took a right turn into stand-up comedy. There was a moment in my life where I had gotten into grad school. My best friend and brother were studying at a yeshiva in Jerusalem, and I had stand-up comedy. And I had these like three, I was looking at these three paths. And I I realized I would never have a moment when my best friend and my brother were in Israel again, so I could go on this sort of spirit quest. I would never get into grad school again, probably at this moment in my life, so I could have this academic quest. Or I could continue to pursue the thing that had given me no indication that it was going to be positive in any way, uh, which was stand-up comedy. And I couldn't decide. I, I, it was a moment of being aware in real time that my destiny was a three-door proposition and that I, depending on which door I walked through, my life would be permanently and irrexably changed. And I chose stand-up comedy, but I could have done another universe. I could have been a, a, a Jewish historian. But I think that for me, history is the way that I tend to understand things. I've been, we were talking about this before we press record, but in, a, in the current sort of crisis, I know I'm not alone in this, but the way that I've been trying to understand what's happening is by relearning the history of the entire region, rereading a bunch of books. I go backwards in order to go forward. So I don't know if you need to know all this stuff to understand me, but it's how I understand myself and my position within the Jewish universe and within the, as I call it in the book, like the river of our people. Your uh, mini description of what the Mishnah is. This segment is the Collected Oral Law, a compendium of the various discussions and expansions of the text in the Old Testament. It was eventually written down when people realized the Jews weren't so good at oral. Yeah, that's the kind of highbrow intellectual. <laughs> that made me howl. It's a kind of engagement with text and history that I was talking about to your listeners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's also this really nice sentiment that you get from your dad, which is this idea of like, fight your way into spaces you aren't welcome. And that's, I think, one of the, the really nice things about your work, which is that it's deeply personal, right? But it's it's super universal, not just for Jews, for anyone. So will you talk a little bit about whether you've taken that advice in your own life and how that sort of stays with you to this day? Yeah, I mean, the context of that is, is that I was raised six weeks a year, an ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jew in a, in, in a Satmar community in Brooklyn. And the rest of the year, I was a secular kid in Oakland Public Schools in California. And my dad was a Balchuva. He came to the faith late, but also he was born into a Hasidic family. It's a very long and complicated history. But my grandparents were secular Jews. They were communists. They were anti-religion. And their parents, my great-grandparents, were Hasidic Jews. The descendants of them all live in Muncie, and they're, they're still very, very religious. And my father was raised in this secular world as a deaf man. Both of my parents are deaf. When my mother left my father and moved us to Oakland, my father had like a crisis of faith. And he went back to, as I say in the book, I think he was looking for an answer. And he went to the oldest source of answers that there was, the, the, the old, old, old country. So my father was a deaf man, divorced, Balchuva, used to be an abstract impressionist painter in the East Village, you know, a beatnik and a weirdo and a hippie. And then he became this Balchuva ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jew and married a Satmar woman, a deaf woman. And then we moved into this really, really religious neighborhood called Seagate in Brooklyn. And so the, the vibe in that community was so, you know, just to explain it, they used to have dodgeball games in Seagate. And it would be the Hasidic kids versus the ultra, ultra, ultra Orthodox kids. <laughs> like for all intents and purposes, we were the goids. 
in the community. Huh. I, I, I was certainly, I mean, I was a Christian missionary. I was so, because I had a, I had an English prayer book and that was like a scarlet letter in this community. No one understood. This is New York City, but nobody understood what possible function an English prayer book could have. So I felt so oblong and like I didn't belong and people would scream goy at us and we were wearing yarmulkes and slacks. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind yeah. of universe that we're living in. So my father never seemed plussed by it at all. He never seemed like an outsider. He never seemed like a person that was self-conscious in any way about his position in that community. And that was a lesson that he taught me, both for good and for bad. Part of it was really a powerful lesson, which is you don't ever allow the approval of other people to grant you entry into spaces that you want to be in, both as a deaf man and as a, an Orthodox Jew. And part of it was, there was part of it that was painful, which was it became about acting as if you belonged aesthetically rather than finding a personal connection. You know, it doesn't matter if you believe this stuff, but make sure you wear the outfit was one half of the message. And the other half of the message was don't ever let anyone else tell you whether you belong somewhere. And yes, I do think I've taken that lesson on because I think that that's, um, that is part of why I found myself in all these different universes is fighting my way into spaces. Yeah. Not like surprised you're as smart as you are. Your <laughs> encapsulation of anti-Semitism is really, really fascinating. You know, you write, this is what the Jew is in the imagination of the bigot, the ethnic boogeyman, the demon behind everything. No matter where we go, we are met with the most bizarre and obsessive hatred. And, and in a funny way, because of your, it seems like different vantage points throughout these different subcultures, like you've come around to understanding Judaism, anti-Semitism, like in, in a more broad and like very, very, very in-depth way. So will you describe a little bit, now that I know you're smart, Thank you. <laughs> in addition to being funny, like, what have you learned about anti-Semitism? And like, in this moment, how does your understanding shape how you see what's going on right now? You know, I once was on the Joe Rogan podcast talking about anti-Semitism, and the, the clip went viral, but in the wrong way. It went Ooh. viral on like, you know, Odin, Odin Twitter, you know, like, mm -hmm. not the people you want sharing your video. Like, all of a sudden, I would find my own clip being sent around by like, white protection society. <laughs> what I said in that clip and what I really believe, and I think I, I gave over in the book, is that like, I'm not a big theist and I'm certainly not a big believer in Jewish exceptionalism in a cosmic sense, chosen people type of energy. I'm, that's not my sort of comfort zone. But if there's anything that gets me believing like in mysticism, and the magical history of the Jewish people it is actually the hatred that we have received the entire time that we have existed and the fact that it has not made us disappear. I would think that, I grapple with this a lot in the book, that you would think that this kind of, this level of hatred would actually blot a people out. But in a lot of ways, I feel like without, now this is, I hope not going to offend anybody, but in a lot of ways, I feel like without that, journey of being kicked in every area we went to, I don't know that we would have made it. I think we are such an old and tiny people, both um, in numbers and in uh, physical stature, that uh, if we had been welcomed in every place we had gone, we would have eventually just evaporated into the broader society. But wandering from place to place, being told always you are an other, you don't belong here, it made the Jewish people, for better and for worse, build these sort of walls, both literal and spiritual, around our collective societies. And that in this very bizarre way, anti-Semitism is, is one of the forces that keeps us a coherent people. So I believe in, the, in this, I don't know if I believe in its spiritual quality, but this almost magical force, this malignant force that that will not allow us to be okay. And so we see that in current events, that, that anti-Semitism sort of floats on top of news currents. And there are incredibly complicated things that are happening currently that are both, uh, we're both victims of. And as you, you, Yuval Harari said, you know, it's possible to be both victim and perpetrator at the same time. And we are in this really complicated historical moment where we see like there, there are things that are really, really terrifying and really brutal and awful happening on in every kind of direction, both outward and inward. And 
Then on top of that is this kind of current of this old ancient hatred that rises on top of the current of the news cycle, where you'll start to read comments and, and they will begin with critiques of Israeli policy, but they will end with, see, this is what these people are like. They think they are special. So I, I kind of think that anti-Semitism is this, you know, in, in, in World War One. Jews were blamed both for being the Bolshevik and for being the capitalist fat cat. We both are the communist agitator and the capitalist boss that wants to oppress you. Germany, prior to World War II, had the most assimilated Jews in the entire European world, and yet that was the seat of Nazism. And then in the Soviet Union, Jews were poor, disempowered, and just trying to survive, and they were hated too. So this kind of hatred feels nearly ever present and is unfortunately just a part of this history that we have. And I don't, I don't see it going anywhere. And, and I don't really know what to do with it other than to understand it so that it doesn't destroy us. I'm impressed by your ability to see things in a macro vision. I was moved by the parts in the book that you addressed that, yeah, had, had we been allowed to assimilate in all these various countries that kicked us to the curb, it might have led to an erasure of uh, Jewish identity and Judaism. But it's also painful to think that it's the hatred of us that is our uniting, bonding, <laughs> raison d'etre, and that the worldwide fuck you that we've received can very easily turn into no fuck you back. Well, it becomes this thing, I'm sure you guys have experienced this too, where you go, it can cause you to lose a little bit of faith in humanity and just say, well, at least we're here, you know, mm -hmm. like at least, at least my... People are here and we haven't been destroyed. And for better or for worse, the ugliness and, you know, the, the Shamalechem book, Some Laughter, Some Tears, to me, has always been the most perfect encapsulation. That just the title. Yeah. By the way, I'm not going to, I haven't read it. So let me not pretend to be more <laughs> intellectual or well read than I am. The title, Some Laughter, Some Tears, to me, is like the ultimate encapsulation in four words of Jewish history. That is it. And I think that in the book, I don't just, it, the book is not a reflection on anti-Semitism and how much we've suffered. It's also a reflection on all the, um, the beauty and the joy and, and the really, um, you know, fuck you can be a really beautiful sentiment. And, and that the fuck you, I feel like is, is our survival. And like, you know, there's a, another segment in the book, not just about anti-Semitism. There's another segment in the book about Shabbat. And I feel like okay, yes, without anti-Semitism, perhaps our people wouldn't have found a way to make it. But I also feel like without Shabbat, Shabbat was this like secret superpower that we had that we didn't even know was a superpower. What I say in the book is like, all through the, the 2000 years of, you know, diaspora and wandering and suffering, Jews everywhere, from Tunis to Warsaw to Berlin to Jerusalem had only six days or less to look into the future, to know that something beautiful was coming, that, that, there, was a, that there was a chicken meal and a, and a bowl of chalent and some challah, like without that uh, bite-sized version of optimism, which is we're five days away from Shabbat, Shabbat is coming, I don't think we would have survived the history that we had either. And it kind of ties into my AA thing. One of the most powerful ideas in AA is they tell you one day at a time, because when you get to AA, and it sounds like a cliche, why is that one of the most powerful ideas? It's like, we, we've all heard one day at a time. Because getting sober and staying sober forever is an impossible ask. It's an impossible task. It cannot be done. But anyone can stay sober for 24 hours. So you just say, don't worry, stay sober for 24 hours. Tomorrow you can drink. And you go, great, that's great. What great news. Tomorrow I'll drink. And then you wake up tomorrow and you realize, oh, no, it's today again. I have to start over. That's very similar to, to the Jewish relationship, I think, with Shabbat, which is like there is no way to survive Jewish history. It is not possible. It cannot be done. 2,000 years of being subjugated and persecuted and pogroms, and it can't be done. But you can make it to Shabbat. Like huh. you can make it to Friday night and make some chicken. You can do that if you bite-size this out. And I think that is the way to survival is by looking forward to the things that are positive and beautiful in the world and not becoming overwhelmed by the ugliness. Wow, that's beautiful. I love that. You and your wife, Natasha Legero, have talked a lot on your podcast and, and elsewhere about, you know, her experience converting to Judaism. You're raising a child now. I mean, I'm curious how you see your Jewish identity, which you trace not just back through your life and your family's life, but way back to Avram, right, before he... <laughs> <laughs> as you point out, became Abraham. Where where do you see yourself now? And, you know, like this idea of Shabbat, is that something you do? There's no judgment in the question, but just like, how do you sort of act this out in your own life? 
I had this thought to answer that question. The first time I've ever had this thought in the last few months, which was, you know, my mother left my father when I was nine months old and my father fought to have a relationship with her. He very easily could have walked away. It would have been very, very easy. He had a new life and a new faith and a new community and a new family. He very easily could have walked away, but he didn't. He fought for visitation. And as a result of that, you know, I would go back home for every summer and live this life of like Tevia the milkman for six weeks a year and then go back and listen to gangster rap in Oakland. And as a result of that, it, it even though it was a lot of it was trauma, because I will not sugarcoat how rough it was doing my summer vacations on the set of Fiddler on the Roof, like... It infused this Jewish identity into me in this way that felt and feels permanent. As opposed to like some of the other subcultures in the book, a lot of my discussion of those worlds is like you growing up and going, I don't think I belong here anymore and walking away. And that happened to me with 12-step groups. It happened to me with raves. And I'm sure it will happen to me with Burning Man maybe someday. But these other... Um, specifically Judaism, deafness too, to a great degree, feel more like they got Wolverine style infused into my skeletal system. And Judaism is permanent in this way. But for the first time in the, in the last few months, I had this thought, man, maybe it would have been easier for me. Maybe it would have been better I, if my father had just walked away from us. I would have missed my relationship with my father. But if this feeling of connection to Judaism didn't feel so infused in my bones, I could be dealing with this current crisis so much easier because I wouldn't feel this existential angst and this also global guilt and this also intergenerational trauma of like, I'm sure we all felt this way of like, you felt the specter of diaspora starting to pop up like, oh, the boogeyman that mom warned me about was under the bed to get me to go to bed on time, you look down all of a sudden, you go, oh no, that was a real man. I thought we were talking about a scary Santa Claus, but actually we're talking about, we're talking about a guy, he's down there, he exists and is real. So there was that, there was this feeling for the first time of man, what an easier life it would have been had I been incidentally Jewish rather than foundationally. So, but of course, like that was just a, a fleeting panic thought. I'm really grateful for that part of my identity. And as I say in the book, like, you know, my, my journey in AA was complicated because I was really a fundamentalist when I was swept up by sort of AA fever. And then when I had kind of a crisis of faith, it unraveled the whole thing and made, and made it just feel like I, I didn't belong there anymore. And I never had a fundamentalist relationship with Judaism because I was so split between two universes that of Oakland and secularism and Brooklyn and Hasidism, that when I settled into it as an adult, it feels very loose garmenty, And nothing that I encounter in Judaism makes me go, oh, throw the baby out with the bathwater. It feels very much just like the skin that I'm in. And yes, to answer your question, I do Shabbat dinner when I can. <laughs> when we did, we did um, Rabbi Neil Weinberg's Judaism by choice was the conversion system. And he said, and I think it was really a deep wisdom, like, if you can just light candles and eat some challah and grape juice, that's good enough. And so we really do try to do that. I'm not Shabbat observant. I would like to be more Shabbat observant, not from a religious perspective, but from I would love to unplug for 24 hours a week. But if I can just sit down and have some challah and light some candles, that's good enough. And it gives my daughter enough of an experience that I feel like she's in, in the river of our people. Just enough. That's beautiful. It occurs to me that when you were talking about incidental and foundational Judaism, that it kind of confirms your hypothesis that anti-Semitism is one of the things that props us up as a people, and that a lot of my friends that might have considered themselves incidental Jews until recent events, October 7th and after, are starting to explore the foundational aspect of it and uh, feeling more strongly their own Jewish identity. Well, I do have a thought about that. One of the thoughts that has been occurring to me a lot since October 7th is that fear and rage and or guilt or a combination of the three is not a sufficient Jewish identity. I really have been thinking about that a lot, like because a lot of my friends too, like for the first time they're awakening to their Jewish identity and it's all through the lens of like scrolling through videos, getting madder and madder and their whole thing, whatever side of the political spectrum they're on, their whole Jewish identity is poured into this vessel of anger and fear. And to me, that is not, that is not good enough to sustain 
a foundational Jewish identity. There has to be a Shabbat. There has to be some laughter and some tears. There, there must be more than just what is happening in Israel and Palestine to your Jewish identity or, or it will not be sustainable. There's so much beauty. There's so much positivity in our people and in this universe that if you are for the first time coming uh, into an awareness of your Jewish identity, like I just think like, Go to a Jewish concert. It does not have to be religious. It can be going to a Shabbat service or a or a temple, but it can also be, you know, volunteering with a Jewish social justice organization. It can be doing a, a, a Jewish Muslim dialogue group. It, whatever it is, it must be, you must infuse the laughter with the tears. I really strongly believe that more than ever right now. You're a good Jewish role model. <laughs> we need more people like you. Truly. Well, read the other segments of my book. It's much less role modeling. <laughs> Moshe Kasher, it's been so fun talking to you. The book is called Subculture Vulture. You can also listen to Endless Honeymoon, the podcast he hosts with his wife, the amazing Natasha Legero, and you can find him on social media at Moshe Kasher. You can find his tour schedule. You can find every single thing about him. And we hope you'll come back and join us on Unorthodox again. I'd be honored to. This has been so good. As I'm sure everybody listening feels, one of those bits of laughter has been literally just kibitzing with other Jews, just getting together and just talking Jewish shit. And so this has been really nice to do that. And Josh, I want to tell you that randomly in anticipation of this conversation, I've been on a 1990s movie kick and I clicked on In the Line of Fire and there you were saying ukulele. <laughs> How to spell ukulele. Agent Chavez, no less. That's where, uh, <laughs> yeah, having a last name Molina, that sounds more Latino than Jewish. Helped me for once. <laughs> Mazel tov. <laughs> Thank you. That was a great interview. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm such a fan of yours. I'm a fan of yours. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. Guys, we are opening the mailbox, the mailbag, for the first time in a long time. We've been doing a lot of serious stuff, a lot of special episodes. We've been neglecting the letters section of this podcast. But of course, we read them all, folks. People should know. Their letters are not going unread. They're just getting uh, ignored on air. So we figured we would start the year by just sort of like with an airing of a lot of the questions, the comments, the things that you have shared that have made us laugh have gotten us to think over the past few months. We're going to start with the post from our Facebook group that kicked up a lot of discussion this is from a listener named Rebecca. Hello all, she writes. My boyfriend and I are curious about the pronunciation of certain Yiddish words. He's from Chicago and pronounces many Yiddish words that end in ah by replacing the final sound with an e. Think matzah is matzi, yarmulke is yarmulke, shmata is shmati. I, a Montrealer, have not heard of this before. Is anyone else familiar with this pronunciation and able to shed some historic contextual light on the matter? Does it have to do with his New World locale or his specific Ashkenazi roots, which are Litvak Romanian? It is the former, of course, as Professor Mel Brooks taught us in a classic treatise on this exact notion when he had Gene Wilder insist that it's pronounced Frankenstein. <laughs> you know, this is this is kind of a long-standing thing because Yiddish, being a you know Germanic type of language, has within it the Germanic way of pronouncing things. Like this is a Stein of beer, and then it comes here to to the New World where things are pronounced with e, as in receive. I mean, American language has a different kind of way of, of working. So I think a lot of people just basically took these words and being unsure how to pronounce them in the correct uh, mamalashin just uh, gave them an American gloss over. It is not latki. There's no such thing as a latki, latki. or a matsi or a shmati. But there is a distinct Midwestern thing. This is I've never heard any of these three, but Lotke, I'm pretty sure Molly Ye, friend of the like show and Food Network too. star who is from the Midwest, says Lotke. Right. New world. She's just she's just wrong. It's such just wrong. It's a Lotka. I will say that Quinn is writing into the chat right now that her Ohio-based Gentile family, I'm assuming she wants us to share it because she typed it in, they say Lotke too. So it's a thing. At least they're not making Holly French toast. That was, that's Holly bread. From Holly, that's, from Holly bread. Holly bread. That's a bridge too far. And we're not sure that maybe somebody who cooks one is the latker and the one who eats it is the latki. Latki, that that's beautiful. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs>
But yeah, so everyone write in, let us know what you think. Let us know the weird way you say words. To say nothing of the schmatter and the schmati, <laughs> which are roles that are decided in the beginning of every marriage. <laughs> we got a nice letter in from Howie Snyderman, who we actually saw in Baltimore at our live show. He writes, Stephanie, thank you for your holy human discussion with Brooke Eby. My best friend was diagnosed with ALS. And the first thing I said after he told me was, now we're going to have to spend even more time together, aren't we? It's now 11 years since he passed. He is my hero and a model for dignity, perseverance, and humor. We had some hilarious moments and conversations. I'm sending love, strength, support, and many thanks to Brooke and to you for making clear that there are many ways to create a legacy of a life live well and well-lived. Beautiful. Very nice. Hallelujah. Thanks, Howie, for that note. Um, I really enjoyed talking to Brooke as well. This note came in um, from Elisa Trackman Lewis in response to the news that Miriam Adelson. In Yiddish, it's Adelson. <laughs> buying the Dallas Mavericks from fellow Jew Mark Cuban. She writes, is it wrong that when I heard this, I was hoping Mrs. Adelson would rename the Mavs for proudly Texas Jew Kinky Friedman's famous band, the Texas Jew Boys. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. If only. If every game would begin by playing they don't make Jews like Jesus anymore, then our work here is done. <laughs> Up next, the Texas Jew Boys versus the Boston Celtics. Look, all these are nice notes, but nothing would ever compare to this triptych that we got live from Florence, from Firenze, Italia. Email number one. <clears throat> I am listening to Words of Wisdom, episode 388, Dan Sinor on the Genius of Israel and Gala Sachs, November 9th, 2023. And I am appalled that you can make light of Anne Frank while Israel is fighting to continue to exist. Alberto, I'm going to completely botch your last name. I believe it's Zaccagini from Florence. Okay, so Alberto did not like the fact that we told an Anne Frank joke. No sooner had we had a chance to even begin and, and want to write Alberto back that a second email arrived. Hello, I kept listening to episode 388, and I am writing again to acknowledge that further in that episode, you start behaving properly with the interesting interview of Miss Gilla Sachs, daughter of Rabbi Sir Jonathan Henry Sachs. Okay, I'll keep listening to this episode 388. Thank you. May Israel win this war for survival ASAP, and may Israel find a wise, fair way to deal with and coexist with its Muslim and Arab neighbors from a position of evidently superior military might. Of course, all the best. Shalom from, as if we didn't know, Alberto Zaccagini, living in Florence, Italy. That delighted us to no end, but two emails would not have been enough, would not have been Dayenu for a man of Alberto Zagagini's character. So here comes number three. Hello, I am writing to you a third time to tell you that further on into episode 388 of your podcast, I appreciated very much that you highlighted Israel's universal mission and purpose. Alberto Zagagini. Um, this is precisely how I would like everyone to send us notes. I would like repeated ongoing live commentary as you listen uh, for all the minutia of everything that you found delightful and offensive. So listeners, right. take note. It's honestly the most Jewish way to communicate. Oh my Lord. And what, one of the ineluctable rules of comedy is that threes are funny. <laughs> and it's like that like possibly apocryphal thing about Jewish conversion where you have to ask three times, which we all just learned right, from Sex also City. Very good. I don't know yeah. if that's true. As the mailbox bait din. Yes, exactly. We will Three. read, no, we'll read no, no missive that isn't uh, thrice emphasized. But please keep the mail coming in ones and twos and threes, however frequently you want to write, unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We love hearing from you and we will be opening that mailbag more often in 2024. Hey all, it's producer Josh Cross back for the new year. As you know, we've had a lot of heavy news coming out of Israel, and especially from our Israel trip. But we wanted to spotlight some of the other stories that inspired us while we were there. To that end, we'll be sharing a few more over the next several weeks. For the first of these, I want to bring you a conversation I had with Ken Cooperman, who founded Blend.ar, a language school that teaches Israelis Arabic and offers Jews and Israeli Arabs a way to connect in informal settings. You'll hear first from Chen, who started the project in 2019, and then from Betzalel Stauber, whose work at Blendar focuses on engaging the Haredi community. Have a listen. 
so my name is Chen Cooperman. I am uh, the CEO and founder of Blender, which is short for Blend Arabic. We are an NGO that teaches uh, Arabic to Jewish Israelis, or maybe it's better to say Hebrew speakers. We don't only teach Arabic, but we actually hire a few dozens of Arab tutors. So it's an employment program for young Arabs, Israeli Arabs. One might ask, why do Jewish Israelis want to learn Arabic? And um, as a person who lives in the Middle East, in a country that has 20% of its population are Arab native speakers and is surrounded by a lot of Arabs, you want to know what they say, what they think, you want to interact with them. This is something that actually feels very um, obvious for many Israelis. And maybe one of the biggest problems is that Arabic is not taught in the education system. Sometimes you, you can choose to study Arabic, but it's not compulsory. So people focus on English, which of course makes sense, but um, one would say that Arabic is also very important and uh, could change something in the reality we live in. One of the problems I encountered when I started studying was that you don't do it with the Arabs. You don't speak with the Arabs. There are rare situations in which you can use your Arabic as a Jewish person in Israel. And I wanted to build a place in which that's easy and possible and, and accessible to students. So the whole thing started as actually an Arabic ulpan. So ulpan is like um, a lot of olim that come to Israel. They're Jewish. They come to an ulpan, which teaches them Hebrew. It's like a, an intensive course for a few months and you study Hebrew the whole day. So we did the same thing with Arabic. We opened an ulpan in an Arab village. So we started in Abu Ghosh. That was our first place. Jewish people from all across the country came to the Arab village, studied there for a month, and created a lot of connections that wouldn't have happened if they weren't in such a program. That's how it started. It's not just the language gap, but the cultural gap. And you can only understand this when you know the language, because there's nuances that you could not explain unless you learn. You can explain, but it's not the same way as once you know what to do. And I always give... There's just like simple examples. For instance, you could sit with this part of your shoe. So you sit with your leclerost and let's say the bottom of your shoe is showing. So this, this is something that's very usual in Israeli culture, you would say. And in the Eastern culture and say Arab culture, this is usually considered disrespectful. You know, it's not like somebody's not going to do business with you or not want to work in your organization if you sit like this, but it might make him feel a little bit uncomfortable. And then you can't, it's hard to build relationship. So that's just a small example. But there's like dozens of these things that we teach. And what we do when we teach is, so what do you do when you converse with somebody? For instance, you just came and sat with me and talked with me. The first thing you do is ask me about myself. And I ask you about you and we get to know each other. That's the first thing people do when they communicate. So when you do this with this Arab tutor, you get to know a new person and he gets to know a new person. So maybe it will be the first time he meets a Haredi and maybe this Haredi is going to be the first time he meets an Arab. So that's, that's how you blend the communities a little bit. And we have dozens of stories of how people became really good friends through these tutoring sessions. The unique approach is the fact that we try to take away the politics. A lot of times when Jews and Arabs sit together, they start just start talking about what they disagree on. And I try to do something else. I try to create a constellation in which the Jews come and study something from the Arabs. This empowers the Arabs in a very natural setting and not a... Not with big words, but just, you know, just for very natural. So that's one thing that I think we do differently. We took the politics away. We try as much as it's possible. This way we are approaching to diverse communities and we, we are able to connect people who usually won't come to these types of programs. The most important thing one should take from this, maybe for this conversation, or is that um, we do need to learn. I think a lot of people in the Jewish society and in the Arab society, in the States and in the Western world, we have a lot of strong opinions. And I think one of the best things we could do is just, you know, learn more, understand more. Studying a language is something that's very long. It's a long process. It takes a year or two years. And there's so much I learned from learning a language. I think that's mainly the goal of what I'm trying to, to bring to you to Israeli societies, to, to bring them to this journey and see how Arab society is very diverse, how the Arab world, there's so many things you, you understand when you start learning Arabic. I mean, you start understanding social media differently. You read things that you usually don't read. So you have a different perspective and lens on how you see things. You are able to interact with people from the, from, from the Middle East. You know, I, from, when I studied Arabic, I was able to, to interact with people from, from Shechem, from Syria, from Gaza, from Lebanon. Also understands how, how they perceive things know what they don't know and they need to know. Anybody who this conflict is important for him or, or wants to know more should study both languages and, and, and immerse himself in the cultures before he can really, really have a strong opinion, I think. During my journey in um, building this NGO, I met an amazing person. 
and his name is Bezalel, he's a Haredi um, Litai, you'd say he's from the Litvak part of Haredi society, an entrepreneur. Bezalel is the guy that connected me to the Haredi community, and I was so surprised to see so many Haredis, men and women, signing up to our programs. So that's that's incredibly unique. And, you know, he built this whole, he built another, like another whole department in Blender, you could say. We don't only teach Haredis Arabic, we do many other things that connect Haredis and Arabs together. And um, he's an amazing person and uh, very inspiring. My name is Bezalel Stauber. I grew up in Jerusalem. I am the five from nine children, warm and very nice family. The issue between Arabs and Jews in Israel, this is very important issue and very hard issue. Our work is to bring Haredi and Orthodox people to be part of this solve from this uh, problem. If we, we took, for example, Jerusalem, so we have here one million people and 300,000 Arabs and 3,000 Haredi. The Haredi community are closed and small community, very, very young because we have a big families. And we afraid that the next generation go to an area of problems with the neighbors here. And our work is to bring them to understand the problem in a good way, to understand the culture in the Arab society and to understand how we try to, to solve this problem. In the beginning, we start to do short training or meetings between young Arabs and Haredi in Jerusalem, and we see that we can do it. And after we build a very big program to social entrepreneurs, Arabs and Jews, and we teach them what is the culture and a lot of knowledge about the different uh, communities, and, and this is our project. It's helped me to, to feel at home. I understand more the problem. Really, I can tell you the day after 7th of October, I was, was sure that we don't have what to do this program this year and we can close our program for, for a year. It was very, very hard days in the Israeli society and also in our work. You can see stores empty, stores of Arabs empty and where they work with Jewish um, clients or something like this, it's it's very hard and everybody very, very afraid. I speak with um, our students in, in the program. They also want to speak again about what they feel or, or understand. I think that if you recognize more so you can have the opportunity to understand who wants to, to kill you and who wants to live near you, uh, it gives you the tools to, to understand this exactly this uh, issue. And we need to, to give power to who wants to live with us, to give them the knowledge and the tools to do it. What do you want other Haradim who don't know about the program to know? And same question, but for Arabs who don't know yet. For the other Haradim, first I want to say that it's our responsibility to solve all the problems of Israel. If you are part of the citizens here, if you are Jewish, if you are believe the, the Torah, and if you hear what God told you, so you need to take responsibility about the reality, if it's comfortable, and also if it's very, very hard. And this issue and the war between Jewish and Arab, it's in our table work. It's hard, but we need to, to solve this problem. For another Arabs, I can say, I want to say that come to our program. We try to show you what the Israeli and the whole the Israeli society want to, how they want to live with you. And you can understand who wants and who is open and who is closed and to understand all the picture here in Israel. And we can give you opportunities to work with us, to live with, with us. And it gives you uh, wonderful tools for the life if you have understanding uh, the Israeli society. We have a lot of work, but this, uh, it, this is the first step.
Mazel tovs. What do we got this week? I think this week we have a collective mazel tov to the few and proud celebrities among us who used the otherwise completely forgettable occasion of the Golden Globes to wear the yellow ribbon and remind the world that there are still more than 130 Israelis and others being held captive by Hamas in Gaza. So, korakavot. Yeah, and I'm going to give a specific shout-out, if I may, to my friend John Ortiz of the film American Fiction, with whom I did the national tour of A Few Good Men about 30 years ago. I appreciate his wearing the the yellow ribbon. And a shout-out to my friend Sam Richardson for actually winning a Golden Globe for uh, Best Guest Shot on a Comedy Series. He's a great actor, a really funny guy. Hallelujah. Mazel. And Bradley Cooper, don't worry. We got you come Oscar time. We'll rig it in your favor. You're still a genius. We still love you. That's right. <laughs> Wear the nose to the event. Oh, my God, please. We'll all, we'll all have our schnozzes on for that. <laughs> all right. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, and Jerome Rusquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo is by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. We love to hear from you. Email us at unorthodoxatabatmag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Happy 2024. We will see you next week. See you in the new year. <laughs> we will continue to see you in this new year. Oh, no, we're going to do between now and 2025. We'll, do, we'll, we'll see them a lot. We'll see them before 2025. Also before 5785. Shalom, friends. Who else do we want, by the way? Who else are we trading for and who else do we want to trade in? I was going to say Daniel Day-Lewis, but is he Jewish? <laughs> he could be. I would like him. He would be for a very intensely for a very long period of time. Yes, exactly. I feel like he would take the role very seriously. Right. And whom should we give away? <laughs> Harvey Weinstein could go. Yeah, I mean, but I also do feel like there's something important about keeping our most shameful members. Understanding that the bad people are Jewish, just like bad people are Catholic and Christian and all the others. I don't I don't love the phrase shameful members. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that you have not changed in 2020. At all. <laughs> that the, the, the flipping of the calendar page has not watered down your essence. No growth is my big uh, New Year's resolution. Is that is that part of the shameful member thing? No growth slash shameful <laughs> members. See, I can play this game too, guys. You're good. Yeah, actually, you better. You one up me. You win this round.